This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, and as you turn there, let's get our bearings here. In Genesis 1 to 11, we see a couple of big ideas. The first is that everything exists because God created it. Everything has its ultimate origin and accountability to God. And not only did God create everything, he made everything exceedingly good. Now, creation did nothing to deserve existence. The statement itself is nonsensical. We did nothing to deserve existence. God made space for us. This is creational grace. That's the first big idea of Genesis 1 to 11. The second big idea is that human beings spoiled what God made. Instead of living in humble submission to God and his word, human beings decided to go their own way. And the result is that humanity is now spinning downward into greater and greater degrees of evil and degradation. It's within that context that God comes to one particular man named Abraham and God says to him, Abraham, I'm going to save the world through your family. So the rest of the book from chapter 12 to the end, chapter 50, unpacks this plot line. How is God going to save the world through Abraham's family? Now the story we're looking at today concerns Abraham's grandson, Jacob. One of the striking things we discover about God's plan to save the world through Abraham is that God isn't doing doing it this way because Abraham's family is extraordinary. Actually, Abraham's family is kind of messed up. Which should be encouragement to all of us. God does amazing things to really messed up people. Let's pick up the story, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me 
and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house so then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Before the age of 19, Frank Abagnale had successfully posed as a Pan American Airways pilot, a Georgia physician, and a prosecuting attorney. Before the age of 19, this millionaire con artist story was popularized in the movie Catch Me If You Can, starring Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. In the plot, the driving force behind Abagnale's serial deception is his desire to impress his father. But in order to do so, he had to become someone he wasn't. He had to become someone else. In many respects, Abagnale's story follows the story of Jacob. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, was a troubled soul. In order to get his father Isaac's love and approval, Jacob had to dress up. He had to become someone else. He had to become more like his brother Esau. So one deceptive act after another caused a fracture in his family so severe that he has to run for his life. And when we pick up the story here in Genesis 28, he's a fugitive. Alone, despairing, and penniless. Now Jacob believed in God. He was not an atheist. He was not an agnostic. There was something deficient about his belief in God, but he was not a denier of the existence of God. So whatever Jacob's belief in God was like, it wasn't enough to alter his life. His faith at this point in the story isn't transformative. In order for Jacob's belief in God to be the kind of belief that alters his life, he needed something. He needed an encounter with God. He needed to experience the grace of God. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the timing of grace, the effect of grace, and the content of grace. The timing of grace, the effect of grace, and the content of grace. First, the timing of grace. Look at verse 11. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. So Jacob is a fugitive, and he's on the run. And the text says that he stopped at a certain place. That's all it says. It has no name. Why? Because it wasn't an important place. Jacob is geographically nowhere. And this isn't just a geographical reality. It's not just a physical reality. It's actually a metaphysical reality for where he is in life. He's nowhere in life. That same verse says he took a rock and he put it under his head for a pillow. No sackcloth, no tunic, no socks, no underwear that could serve as something better than a rock. He's penniless. He has literally hit rock bottom. Now, why is he there? He's not rock bottom because he's being persecuted for his faith. He's, uh, he's rock bottom because he's burned every bridge he had in his life. He's been a serial deceiver. And he's now on the run because his brother Esau, whom he deceived, wants to kill him. If this was being depicted in a movie, at this point in the story, nobody is cheering for Jacob. 
Nobody's rooting for him. He's not the protagonist. He's not the good guy. He's the guy we want the authorities to catch. Notice also that Jacob is not out in the middle of nowhere because he's on a spiritual retreat. He's running for his life. Now you would think, wouldn't you? Common sense here. You would think, if this is the state of his life, it's at this point he would come to his senses and start confessing his sin to God. Right? Look at you. You've got nothing and no one. You would think that this is the moment, this is the tipping point where he would start to say, I am sorry that he would confess the lies, the deception, the bridges burned, the relationship soured. Not a word comes out of his mouth. Not a word. All of this sets up the timing of God's grace. Jacob is alone. He's afraid. He's exhausted. He's despairing. He's burned all his bridges. And while he possesses some type of belief in God, he's not seeking God. He's not crying out to God. He's not looking for God. In other words, folks, Jacob is in an ideal spot to encounter God's grace. Grace is grace precisely because it will blindside you. It will hit you when you least expect it. What makes grace grace is that God wields it sovereignly. We don't qualify ourselves for it. God's grace isn't something we meet in the middle. We don't negotiate with God for it. We don't manipulate it through our moral performance. Grace is grace precisely because God wields it sovereignly. Now, conventional wisdom would say Jacob is least deserving of what God is about to say to him and what God is about to do for him. God is about to say and do for Jacob some extraordinary things. Conventional wisdom would say he doesn't deserve any of it. But that's grace. That's exactly what grace is. Psalm 25 verse 11 says this. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Look, look closely at that verse. Look closely at that verse. In Jonathan Edwards' sermon on this text, Edwards notes that the psalmist doesn't say, pardon my sin because I have done much to counterbalance it. He doesn't say, pardon my sin because it is small and frankly, you don't have a very good reason to be upset with me. Edwards notes the contrary. The psalmist pleads the greatness of his sin, not the smallness of it. Do you see it? He says, because my sin is great, pardon me. God doesn't show grace because we're worthy. God doesn't first wait for us to clean up our act a little bit before he shows us grace. God shows grace because we need it. And more importantly, that's the kind of God he is. I wonder, do you know God to be that way? The conception you carry around with your, in your head about who God is, is that, is that it for you? Do you have that part of it in, in your idea of who God is? Francis Thompson is a 19th century British poet. He wrote the poem, The Hound of Heaven. 
John Stott, who was a pastor and, and writer, refers to Thompson's poem to describe his own conversion to Christ. According to Stott, he owes his faith in Christ not to his parents or his teachers or even his own decision, but to Jesus, the hound of heaven. Stott put it this way. He said, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself, who pursued me relentlessly, even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Grace is grace precisely because it will blindside you. It will hit you when you least expect it. Listen, maybe that's encouraging to you today because you are where Jacob was. You've been on the run. You've been burning bridges. You're not seeking God. You're existing with some type of belief in God, but you wouldn't say your relationship with him is vibrant. Maybe today is the day that God surprises you. Maybe today's the day that God shocks you with a revelation of himself. I want to encourage you today that if that's where you are, you are in an ideal spot to encounter the grace of God. Maybe there's someone in your life who's on the run. Maybe you know someone in your life, a family member, a friend, who's on the run. Like Jacob, he or she has burned bridges. They're not really looking for God. They're not crying out to God. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Jacob didn't move one inch towards God before God exploded into his life and transformed this fugitive into a worshiper. The timing of God's grace is startling. Second, the effect of grace. Now, we can all feel like Jacob at times, directionless, alone, God feels remote. But what was the effect of the dream Jacob had? What does the dream accomplish in Jacob's life? Let me tell you what it, what it does. It illumines Jacob to a world invisible to him. It makes him aware of a real, concrete, rock-solid reality he couldn't see. This is what's so profound about why God reveals this to him through a dream. God is showing Jacob a real world, invisible to him in his wakefulness. A world unseen and unknown to him in his wakefulness, but a real world. In 2 Kings 6, Israel's at war with Syria. And Elisha's servant is freaking out. Because as he scans the horizon, he sees Israel outnumbered and surrounded. But Elisha comes up to his servant and he says to him, those who are with us are actually more than those who are with them. This boggles the servant's mind. And then in verse 17, we read this. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now to the naked eye, Israel was surrounded and outnumbered, but reality was bigger than the naked eye could detect. Reality was bigger than the naked eye could detect. 
This is what grace does. It illumines us to a real world, often invisible to us during the rhythms of wakeful daily life. Let me give you some examples of how this might work out. To the naked eye, we think God is against me. He's against me. He's not really for me. How could God possibly be for me when all these things are happening in my life? This is our experience during our wakefulness. But there's an unseen reality God wants to get across to us. He wants to alert us to something else. And the reality is this. The best of all men dies as though he were the worst of all criminals. God was willing to give his son for you. That's how you know he's for you. Let me give you another one. To the naked eye, we think, I have failures Satan can charge me with. What could I possibly say in my defense? This is our experience during our wakefulness. We're plagued with scene after scene of failure in our lives. This is the experience we have during our wakefulness. But there's an unseen reality God wants to alert us to. In Christ, I am as righteous before God as Jesus is. God will treat me as if I lived the perfect life Jesus lived. Let me give you another one. Maybe you have a loved one on the run and maybe they are thinking, how could God possibly love someone like me? How could God possibly love someone like me? I have done so much that disqualifies me to be the recipient of God's grace. But there's an unseen reality God wants to alert them to. God doesn't save sinners because we're worthy to be saved. God saves sinners because that's the kind of God he is. His love and his grace are no match for our failures. Grace illumines us to a real world often invisible to us during the rhythms of wakeful daily life. I'll try to illustrate this. Imagine you're going out on a hike through the forest. You're one of those, you're an outdoorsy type person. Going through the forest, you're going on a hike, enjoying the scenery, suddenly you realize you don't know where you are. So what was supposed to be a two-hour hike has turned into a four-hour ordeal. So instead of continuing, you change tactics. You identify the tallest climbable tree you can find. You climb up the tree so you can get above the canopy of the forest. And once you do so, you spot a dirt road in the distance. You climb back down. You make your way out. What you needed was to get above the visible life immediately in front of you. You needed to be able to see reality that is unseen in the routine of your hike. This is what God's grace does. God's grace provides us with a perspective from higher up to get you above what you see in the routines of daily life. See, God's grace is providing Jacob with a view of the world drastically different than the one he was experiencing. 
Receiving this perspective transforms this fugitive into a worshiper. See, the effect of grace alerts us to a real world, often unseen to us during our wakeful daily moments. And you'll know you've been given this perspective when it transforms you from someone fearful to someone worshipful. From someone on the run to someone in pursuit of God. But what exactly is the content of grace Jacob received? We need to know that. We need to know why it was this had such a profound effect on him. Well, in Jacob's dream, he sees three entities. He sees a stairway, he sees angels, he sees the Lord himself. And then he hears God say something. And the centerpiece of this story is God's speech to Jacob. This is what he says. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So, so God makes three overarching statements to Jacob. I will give you, I am with you, I will not leave you. I will give you, I am with you, I will not leave you. God is reiterating a promise he made to Jacob's grandfather. Jacob's descendants will become a populous nation with a land all to themselves and no one and no thing will be able to eradicate them. God is going to do this for and through Jacob. Jacob of all people, a treacherous, conniving fugitive who has burned every bridge imaginable. Listen, Jacob has nothing. He's penniless. But God says, I will give you everything. Jacob has no one. He's burned every bridge. But God says, I am with you. Jacob has abandoned his family. But God says, I will not leave you. The content of grace Jacob receives is one of blessing, thriving, flourishing life. And during his life, he's done everything possible to disqualify himself from such blessings, but that's what makes grace amazing. That's what makes our God amazing. Did you know that Jesus refers to this story? In John chapter 1, he refers to the story of Jacob and the stairway. In calling men to follow him as his disciples, Jesus turned to this group and he said, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is identifying himself as the stairway. He is the link between heaven and earth. And notice something about the way in which Jesus describes this. Jesus doesn't stand at the top of the stairway with arms folded, waiting to see who can make the climb. He has come to show, he's not come to show us how to climb the stairway. He is the stairway. He is the way. He's already done everything for us. See, the content of grace isn't Jesus saying to you, 
let me show you what you must do to be saved. The content of grace is Jesus saying to us, watch me live the perfect life for you and pay the penalty for your sin. This is where people start to get Christianity and Jesus all wrong. Listen, Jesus is not a messenger who has come to show you how to find God. Okay? Jesus is not a messenger who has come down to heaven to show you how to find God. That's not who he is. That's not what the imagery conveys. Jesus himself is God who has come down to find you. That's who he is. Do you know him to be that way? Do you know that this is who Jesus is? He's not a messenger who's come to show you how to find God. He himself is God who has come down to find you. I want to show you a story of a man in our church who, like Jacob, believed in God, but in his own way was on the run until he encountered the grace of God. Let's take a look. I grew up in a very small town in the middle of Missouri. Almost all of our family went to the same type of church, a small church, roughly 40, 50 people in a congregation, uh, no musical instruments, no, um, very, very strict in what they believed. Uh, I had this I wouldn't say a sense that I wanted to know Jesus, but a, a sense that I didn't want to go to hell. Baptism and salvation went hand in hand. You weren't saved if you weren't baptized. I was 13 years old and got baptized, and um, it was quite an it was it was a pleasant experience um, until I got in the car on the way home. My cousin asked my asked my mom if. So is Shannon going to go to heaven now? And my mom's response was, well, yeah, if he hasn't sinned since he was baptized. That, that's just always stuck with me. And it always gave me a sense that something, something didn't feel right about that. My, my so-called Christian walk at that time was built on the premise that I needed to follow the rules and that I, um, I better not mess up. When I was 17, I was dating a girl, and her and I uh, did some things we probably should not have done, that I know we should not have done, and a terrible guilt I was feeling uh, about it, and so I went and I talked to my brother. In the next 24 hours, he told his wife about our conversation, which did go to the church. She went to my mother. My mother went to the preacher, and then the preacher was on my doorstep, and I received the message that you know, I needed to get in front of the church and ask for forgiveness or I shouldn't come back. So I chose not to go back. It was difficult because I had a close family and most of my family went to the church. Um, they used some of the scripture to back up uh, this idea that they shouldn't eat with me, they shouldn't talk to me. So that was difficult. Uh, but then I married when I was 19 to the same girl, but a year after we were married, she had left me for, for an ex-boyfriend of hers. 
I was fighting the guilt of, of being divorced. I was, I was raised to believe that if you're divorced, you can't get married again. You know, that's, that's it. You're single the rest of your life. I started working for a company and there was this guy there, Bob, that just really took an interest in me. And he and I, uh, he invited me to lunch. We started going to lunch about every week, twice a week. And he invited me to church a number of times. Uh, I finally came. After two or three times attending, I, I started like seeing what these people like were talking about, like the stuff that was wrong in their lives, but they were still talking about this hope that they had in Christ. And to me, those things didn't reconcile. The, the concept of grace was completely new to me. So I spent the next year, to be honest with you, reading scripture to try to disprove this idea of grace that they were talking about and through that uh, found that that I could be accepted for who I am by Christ and not by what I do. I'm not sure what the switch was but there was this realization that that Christ died for me and it wasn't just words it was I, I it was it was everything in me like I, I felt it emotionally I felt it intellectually I felt it like every part of me felt that for the first time in my life, I knew that Christ died for me. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? I want to ask you just a couple of questions. Maybe you're can relate to Jacob, maybe can relate to Shannon. Um, you're on the run. You've got some type of belief in God, but you wouldn't say that your relation with him is vibrant. The recipe to, to transform a fugitive into a worshiper is an encounter with God's grace, just like it was for Jacob, just like it was for Shannon. My question to you is, have, have you ever had that? Have you ever had an experience of God's grace? If not, do a couple things for me. First, pray right now in these moments and ask God to show you more of his grace. To show you what it is we've been talking about. Second, if that's where you are, would you come talk to me? Maybe after the service, maybe some other time, talk to me. Here's my other question. Who in your life is on the run? Take just a minute and pray that God would startle them with his grace, that he would explode into their lives and transform them from a fugitive into a worshiper. Father, some of us need to be awakened to the reality of your grace which comes from the kind of God you are. In Jesus, you came the whole way. We didn't meet in the middle. We didn't qualify ourselves for your grace. You came the whole way. So I pray that you would awaken us to the God of grace that you are. God, we want to be worshipers, not fugitives. And so I pray you would overpower our doubts and our unbelief. Let us experience and encounter 
the grace you have given us in the life and death of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.